If the saying there's no such thing as bad press is true, which it certainly seems to be within the horror genre, then these outrageous claims of such violent repulsion created a more morbidly curious audience. Year after year, there always seems to be a director in the horror genre who makes it their goal to push the bar of the excessively gory, gratuitously violent, and overtly pornographic. It's as if they're in direct competition with the last film that was purported to have left audiences feeling a little queasy, or better yet, to have caused them to leave the theater before I'm the movie was even over. And I, I, I don't want to leave her in there alone. I'm not standing here shaking for nothing. <laughs> How about you? Oh, it's very, very real. I don't like it. I want to go home. I want to see if it's going to make me throw up. It's it's that is one of the most grossest movies uh, in the world. <laughs> I ain't never took my coat and hold my face like that. Uh, I thought it was uh, very powerful. Just turned my mind. <sighs> terrible. I just found it really horrible. I just had to come out. I couldn't take him. People are extremely depressed by this. Doesn't bother me that much. But I guess it bothered her more than it bothered me. Fantastic movie. Mm -mm -mm. I can't. I don't like getting Spanish or English or whatever. It's really gross. Did it upset you? Yeah. <laughs> it's really terrific. But is excess in horror ever truly exploitative? Or is it all subjective? Now, if you couldn't tell today, I'm going to be talking about excess and exploitation within the horror genre. But just as a heads up, this video might be considered not safe for work, and it's definitely not something that I would let children watch. The content discussed today might be considered triggering or disturbing for some viewers, so this is your chance to click off now. You won't hurt my feelings if you decide not to stick around. I'll give you a few seconds to decide if you want to keep watching. In the meantime, for those of you who are staying to watch, Please don't forget to like this video and subscribe to my channel if you want to see more great horror content in the future. Also, hit the bell and get notified whenever I upload a new video. Now, if you're still here with me, here we go. If you're unfamiliar with the Hayes Code, you might have heard it referred to as the Motion Picture Production Code. It was a standardized set of industry guidelines for the self-censorship of content within films. It was applied to most of the motion pictures that were released by major studios in the U.S. from 1934 to 1968. In 1927, when Will H. Hayes initially suggested that a committee be formed to discuss film censorship, it was in an attempt to rehabilitate Hollywood's image. The early 20s had, as it turned out, been a fairly scandalous time for Hollywood stars, so in order to return to the status quo, it was decided that all films be required to abide by a codified list of don'ts and be carefuls. Even though we're long since past the Hayes Code, films in the horror genre are still quite often targeted for content that is deemed to be excessive and exploitative, whether that be due to gratuitous violence or overtly pornographic scenes. Horror films have fought every step of the way to remain true to the voice of the genre, and the consistency in which film creators have chipped away at those codes since their inception has brought us to where we are today. Even after the Hayes Code was retired in 1968, it was replaced by the Classification and Rating Administration. This new rating system was intended to act as a parental advisory, 
rather than just straight censorship. Now that sounds fair, right? Well, it was definitely a step in the right direction, but it didn't end censorship entirely, and even movies like Hellraiser still had to deal with censorship before they premiered. Eventually, what was deemed excessive or exploitative was lessened over time. As an example of what we might consider to be extreme censorship these days, in 1931, when Frankenstein was first released, the Kansas board banned it for the entire state. There were thousands of unhappy moviegoers who wanted access, so eventually the board relented. Before letting the movie through, however, the Kansas board bastardized the movie with so many cuts that it would have been stripped of all of its horrific elements. Now, this caused the motion picture producers and distributors of America to intervene and allow the movie through with fewer cuts. Stop the tape. The scene was restored in 1986, but you can tell where they originally tried to mask it with thunder. Okay, roll scene. See, the problem that they were having was that film standards enforced in the 30s did not take into account the production of the horror genre. Horror, after all, was an incredibly new genre in the film industry at that point. And after wondering where the line would be drawn for a genre that consistently dug further into the dark, it was finally decided that, as long as monsters refrained from illicit sexual activity, respected the clergy, and maintained silence on controversial political matters, that they might walk with impunity where bad girls, gangsters, and radicals feared to tread. Those standards didn't last for long. As we all know, the lines within horror are blurred. Humans can be the monsters who don't refrain from illicit sexual activity. Demonic representations within films regularly disrespect the clergy, and directors of horror movies have a tendency to be outspoken on controversial political matters through their storytelling. Censorship for violent or graphic content was incredibly strict from the inception of the Hays Code until the 1960s when the film standards for censorship were finally relaxed. This coincided with the growing popularity of TV sets in the home and more unsupervised access to entertainment. Television programs had tighter restrictions and harsher censorship. As an example, even married TV couples had to sleep in separate twin beds within the programs. Because God forbid American audiences imagined any funny business was happening once the lights went out. Televisions made entertainment more easily accessible to people in the comfort of their own homes, so this created stiff competition for filmmakers. As a response to the even stricter TV standards, film production codes were allowed to be lowered in order to lure patrons back to the theater with the prospect of seeing something forbidden or taboo. <laughs> when Hellraiser was first released in 1987, audiences may have felt a little shocked at the audacious sexualization of pain and violence. To be fair, within the first 15 minutes, we're already introduced to the graphic nature of the gruesome torture scenes that were cut in between scenes of sexual infidelity. The uh, maison scene we are given with Julia's flashback to her affair with her soon-to-be husband's brother, Frank, sets the tone for the rest of the movie. Frank appears in? at the door, confident, if not rude and slightly Can mysterious, 
He's drenched from a downpour of rain, and he immediately imposes himself on a more innocent and unassuming version of Julia than we've been introduced to thus far. We cut to her walking into the third floor attic, a dusty, dingy room in ill repair, so that she can be alone with her thoughts. Every inclusion of prop, from the knife that he cuts her nightgown with, to the wedding dress he lays her down upon, is essential to this storyline. It allows the audience to see that Frank will take what he wants from Julia without a second thought. Julia, a young and presumably, at this point in time, chaste woman, has clearly never been with a man so confident who takes what he desires without asking. <laughs> Ignoring all of the red flags, she falls lustfully into their fervent and passionate, if not taboo, lovemaking. Engaging with Frank atop her pure white gown and selling her presumably innocent reputation is a visual representation of what Hellraiser translates to. Pleasure that feels sinful and pain that feels pleasurable. Two things that, with the lament configuration, blend seamlessly together. The scene continues. Cutting from the flashback of the affair to the present-day Julia and Lange remembrance, and then to her husband as he struggles to move a mattress into their new home. Frank and Julia climax in the flashback. Present-day Julia begins to cry, and Larry cuts himself deeply on a nail protruding from a wall. In these five minutes, we have excess in the taboo sexual act of cheating, the emotional show of Julia's aching desire for Frank, and the adverse reaction Larry has to his own hand gushing with blood. The movie continues on in this matter, unapologetic and all the more entertaining for it. We spend the next few minutes watching the floorboards soak up Larry's blood and subsequently reconstitute most of Frank's body. Some people might have found those two scenes to be subversive or even repulsive. Some, according to movie critics at the time, found it to be comical. I think ignoring how poorly the special effects have aged and appreciating it for the time it was created might allow for the viewer to give the movie the benefit of the doubt, suspend disbelief, if you will. All of these elements together sow the seeds of a completely gratifying horror experience. Any attempt to relate to Julia may actually have you feeling sorry for her. Like any young woman who has become hopelessly infatuated with a man, she feels as if she has fallen in love with Frank. She also, incorrectly, believes that he reciprocates those feelings. The truth is that desire and love don't always coexist, and they most definitely don't for Julia and Frank. Aside from using her for his own personal gain, in this instance to escape from hell and the Cenobites, Frank doesn't actually care for her at all. The story continues, and Frank's coercive nature leads her to bring back men for him to feed off of so he can be free to run away. Her own selfish desires lead her to assume that once he's back in his skin, quite literally, that they'll rekindle their love affair and run away together. Hellraiser aside, the lens with which we regard violence and sex is dependent upon the culture within which we've grown up. Where America has historically fallen back on Christian outrage when it comes to depictions of sex on the big screen, especially the premarital variety, violence has always been considered more acceptable. Alternatively, countries like Sweden have had the opposite policy. So people in America, as an example, experience an incredible amount of shame and anxiety surrounding their own sexual desires that may or may not be considered taboo within an otherwise moral society. This of course causes an internal conflict for the audience. What's more is when Hellraiser's bad boy Frank suggests that pleasure and pain are indivisible within the realm of the puzzle box, 
it cements the concept of sexualizing brutality. A certain morbid curiosity has escalated the gory nature of horror films with the release of each new feature. Post-9-11 audiences seem to be even more desensitized than before, so torture porn like Saw and Hostel hit the theaters, and horror fans just flocked to experience the pure repulsion and anxiety that comes with watching the suffering of others. In a world where fear and uncertainty were becoming more commonplace, there was a vacuum for this type of horror. These gratuitous, excessive, taboo movies gave viewers a space in which they were free to be afraid without any real consequences of being harmed. Now, in my opinion, excess turns exploitative when the horror no longer fits around an underlying story, but instead a story is made to fit around underlying ideas of violence and repulsion. Like pornography that attempts to have a plot, here's looking at any motion picture porn parody, exploitative horror like The Human Centipede, I Spit on Your Grave, and a Serbian film is simply an excuse to showcase gratuitous violence and sexual brutality. These films are still liable to be heavily cut and censored, but access to the internet and VPNs means modern censorship can only reach so far. What is interesting is that such exploitative films are defended regularly, but are they films that even need to be defended? A Serbian film subject matter is indefensible, yet there are people who try to reason away that the scene where the infant is assaulted by bringing up the fact that it wasn't a real infant. Well, regardless, it was a scene that was meant to be conveyed in the most realistic way possible in order to elicit a strong repulsion response. What's worse, with scenes such as these, is that it's been suggested that the masochistic and sadistic aspects of film viewing experience implies that viewers get some sort of sexual gratification from these images. Horror and sex have a long intertwined history. The eroticization with depictions of violence is nothing new. However, a horror film's ability to stimulate viewers sexually not only draws their attention, but primes them to react more strongly to other feelings, such as suspense and fear. In the end, what is considered exploitative or excessive is dependent upon the audience. There will always be those who object, just like there will always be those who call for more violence, gore, repulsion, and explicit sexual content. Strong reactions and emotions have historically created experiences few people can forget. As an example, after the release of Hostel in 2005, viewers were not only fleeing the theater, they were reportedly throwing up in their seats. If the saying there's no such thing as bad press is true, which it certainly seems to be within the horror genre, then these outrageous claims of such violent repulsion created a more morbidly curious audience. So where is the line drawn between acceptable and excessive? The balance I have found has to be struck within each individual viewer. If you know your limits, then you'll be able to judge whether or not a movie will push those limits. If a viewer watches something knowing that they're likely to be upset, then they can't blame the filmmaker for upsetting them any more than a person with high cholesterol can blame McDonald's for their potential for blood clots. With all of this in mind, do you think there's such a thing as exploitative horror? What would you consider to be excess within a genre that continues to blur the lines? Are there any movies? besides maybe the ones that I've already mentioned, that you consider to be excessive or exploitative. Let me know about them in the comments below, and don't forget to give me a thumbs up on this video if you enjoyed it, then subscribe to my channel if you'd like to see more content like this. Follow me on all my social medias, and check out my live stream on Twitch every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I stream horror content, and I talk horror with people that come into my chat. Stay creepy, my friends.
See you next time.